Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe the best way, no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Okay, welcome everybody to the Fee-for-Service Podcast. I am still your substitute host while Drew Burns is... Um, enjoying fatherhood and his new office and hopefully his Christmas and New Year's vacation as well. So um, in his absence, I've reached out to get some of what I feel are the top people in dentistry. And I think today we have certainly one that I I put up there on my top five list for sure. Uh, It's Dr. Roger Levin. It's pronounced Levin, not Levine. And he is the CEO of the Levin Group, a leading dental management consulting firm founded in 1985, the year I graduated college. Dr. Levin is one of the most sought out educators in dentistry and is a leading authority on dental practice success and sustainable growth. Love sustainable growth. Through extensive research and cutting edge innovation, Dr. Levin is recognized expert on propelling practices into the top 10%. He has authored 65 books, write that down, 65 books, 4,000 articles on dental practice management and marketing. Dr. Levin sits on the board of editorial board of five prominent dental publications. He's been named as one of the leaders in dentistry by Dentistry Today for the past 15 years. Recently also named 32 of the most influential people in dentistry by Incisal Edge Magazine and voted Best Dental Consultant by readers of DrBicuspid.com. He has been featured in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Times Magazine, and the creator of the Levin Group Tip of the Day, which has over 30,000 subscribers. And full full disclosure, I am a a, uh, full member of the Tip of the Day and have been a client of Dr. Levin's for the last year, from 2019 well into the year of the absurd 2020. We're still trying to wrap up our, our agreement because it's been put on hold, so to speak. So, uh, Dr. Levin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thank, thank you, Sonny. I, I'm actually thrilled to be doing this. You know I'm a big fan of yours as well, and uh, I think we're going to have fun and help a lot of people with this podcast, so this will be great. Well, super. That's the idea. So our, our title for today's podcast and we're actually hoping to do two. I've got Dr. Levin for an hour and a half, and I'm going to try to just squeeze every bit of juice out of them that I can. So 
today's topic for this podcast is how has COVID-19 impacted dentistry and what can you do to prepare for the future? Um, so with that, Dr. Levin, let me ask you a couple questions, but before we get into it, I, I want to get, let's get a little bit of your history and your background, because I think when people get their, their pictures colored in a little bit, it's very helpful. So tell us a little bit about your story, how you came into dentistry in the beginning, and then how dentistry evolved into consulting. Sure. I'm happy to. And uh, I actually have a history in dentistry. However, I take no credit for it. It's all genetic. Uh, I'm a third-generation dentist. My grandfather uh, finished high school in uh, when he was 18 years old in 1918. In those days, you didn't have to go to college, but he had to work for five years to earn enough money to go to dental school because uh, there were no student loans back then. And he graduated and opened his first practice in 1926. My father came along in 1956, and I came along in 1982. And I had one of the great pleasures of my life and career was the 10 years that my father was my partner. Uh, unfortunately, he had Parkinson's disease and then subsequently retired after my 10th year. And uh, I tell the story, Sonny, and you can relate to this, that when I was a kid, there were no video games, there was no internet, there were no consoles. Uh, and when I would meet my father at the dental practice for a ride home after taking my piano lesson or visiting the coin shop or getting a cherry soda at the deli next door, uh, if my father wasn't ready to entertain myself, I would sit in the hall and shoot balls of mercury together. Uh, and I was telling my son that story when he was younger and he looked up at me, he said, Dad, I think that's why you've turned out the way you are. It's, it's mercury poisoning. Um, but that, that's still one of the neatest physical things you can possibly see is these two balls moving into one. So, you know, I grew up playing in the dental office, then working in the dental office. And I knew from an early age that I was going to be a dentist. I loved it. Uh, it was tremendous. I practiced full-time from 1982 to 92. I did the same things you've done, Sonny. I tried to be a better dentist by completing the Panky Institute and getting uh, you know, fellowships in different dental organizations and always, always enjoyed trying to learn more. Uh, but in 1985, uh, I started Levin Group, the consulting firm. I had no right to do it. I was only three years into practice. And people often ask me, well, why did you start a consulting firm? And the answer is that in 1982, the rumors were that dentistry was gonna be decimated by managed care. And dentists were pretty concerned about this. Uh, there was something called closed panel insurance starting where you couldn't even sign up for some of the plans. If you didn't get in right away or you weren't invited, you couldn't even sign up for some of those plans. And as, as medicine was the barometer, and medicine was really getting hit hard by managed cares, physician fees were getting reduced, incomes were getting slashed. Uh, you know, when I went to dental school, uh, the joke was that you went to dental school if you couldn't get into medical school, which yeah. was not in your case or my case, but for some people. And by, by the early 2000s, the joke had reversed that most physicians wish they had been dentists. Uh, so reality was that I was concerned about the future of dentistry. 
and I was not going to work in a managed care environment. Now, that those were my values in, in the 1980s. And uh, I went to work on my business skills to give it the best shot I could. And that led to a series of accidents that led me into practice management. And in 1985, I actually incorporated Living Group. So we're about to enter our 37th year, hopefully of serving the dental community and being of great help to people, our clients, uh, including you. Uh, so I'm very proud of my history of dentistry and my heritage, and I do take my responsibility to the profession very seriously. So let's back up for one second. You went into practice with your father. For, yes. You practiced with him for 10 years? I did. It was... Uh, I can't imagine a better partnership. We, we never had a single argument. We didn't agree on everything. I don't want to paint a picture of, you know, a complete uh, harmony. I remember, I, this is funny. I remember trying to talk him into getting a fax machine when they first came out. And he's like, why would we ever want that and spend money on that? And they, they were expensive when they first came out. Yeah, they had a um, phone line too. Right, <laughs> right, right. And my father ran an excellent practice uh, he was one of those great Americans that loved his work, loved his family, was not flamboyant, was very happy with his income. He saved well. He put three kids through private school, college and graduate school, uh, and he paid for all of it, which was great. And uh, although there's a funny story about University of Maryland Dental School for me, which I'll tell you in a moment. And he um, he was just the most fantastic partner to learn from. I. You know, one of the most striking moments was when I first got to the practice because, you know, you, it wasn't as common to do a residency in those days. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, Roger, take the next six months, go slow, take your time, your speed will increase and let me know how I can help you. You know, it's just one of those incredible moments I'll always remember. Another one was when I called my father from college. The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. And I've gotten four dental school acceptances. Uh, one was University of Maryland School of Dentistry. And for the listeners, it's important to know I'm a Maryland resident. So Maryland Dental was very very, very inexpensive. And the other three were three of the most expensive schools in the country that were in the Northeast. And I said, Dad, I have great news. I got into Maryland and these three other schools. And his immediate response was, Roger, you're going to love University of Maryland. Uh, and also my father and grandfather went there. So there was no argument that it, I, I should go to a different school. Um, but dental schools, unlike law school and business school, are fairly similar in quality, or at least they were then. So it, there was no argument either that, well, if I go to this school, I'll get a better job. I knew where my job was gonna be. Uh, so, uh, and it was a great education that, that we received from uh, University of Maryland School of Dentistry. So when you're growing up, right? So your father, uh, and you said you have a couple siblings. So at, at dinner time. Was, was dentistry a topic of discussion when you were in high school? I mean, you said you, you knew you always wanted to go into it, but were there, because uh, Dr. You know, Howard Fran talked about that with sisters and his dad was a sonic 
And so he learned sort of the business of, of franchise, let's say, uh, the business of, you know, papers and, you know, costs and, you know, line items. Uh, was that at all, part, it had to be part of the, the nature of the how the Levin household at the time, but just give us some insights into what that was yeah. like growing up. Right. Well, Sonny, as you, as you know, families were very different back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even the 80s. So we, we had family dinner, you know, because my father was a dentist, we had a family dinner every night. He was always home for dinner. Uh, we ate dinner with my grandparents every Friday night. And then we went to a Chinese restaurant every Sunday night with my grandparents. So certainly my father and grandfather would talk about dentistry, but actually it wasn't the, it wasn't the predominant topic. My, my family um, was oriented toward how was school today? What did you learn? My, it was a learning family. Education was very big in my family. Um, and then I remember my father and my, my grandfather and mother uh, playing word game, vocabulary games at the table, challenging each other. And we would all sit there just mes mesmerized Today, we have a, since COVID hit, we have a daily meeting with our executives uh, and managers 10 to 11 every single day, which is one of the smartest things I ever learned to do. And we start off with something called word of the day. And somebody's responsible to bring a word, usually to stump everybody else. The goal is not to stump them, but it's not a, it's, it's an SAT level word. And I, I can tell you, I have a really good vocabulary, but there's so many words. I know the word, but I can't quite bring out the exact definition at that moment. So a lot of my family uh, get togethers were about discussion on learning. I remember when we would go on our vacations in the summer, you know, my father being a dentist, we took a three week driving trip every summer to national parks. We drove to all the national parks. We drove to Acapulco even <laughs> on a, while we, well, well, it was a trip. It was a Mexico trip, not just go to Acapulco. And, you know, for, for months in advance, we were assigned to bring reports from Britannica on this national park or this state or this area uh, to give to the family to help get ready for the trip. So that was probably predominant, although dentistry was often part of the discussion. Where, where did you develop your love of writing? Um, that had to come from, I would imagine, some of the, you know, you're learning all these words and now you're, you know, use them in a sentence, right? So did that really start to get you to think of, as a writer? Because, I mean, you have prolific writing history here. So um, I, I could just imagine that the seed of that was being fostered and, and, and nourished in your youth. I mean, did that come about? I mean, where did that come from? It, it absolutely was. I, I think that many of us tend to take credit for things that someone else actually touched us with. Um, you know, it, it, I meet so many people in life. I'm a very curious person. And one of the things I have a lot of curiosity about is how did a successful person in a certain field get there? Or why do, why do you live, why do you, Sonny, live in Binghamton, New York? It's, it's not as if you were dropped on earth from Mars and and you said, I think I'm going to go live in Binghamton. You know, it might not, it might not have been your first choice or Baltimore might not have been mine, uh, although I like it here a lot. And the answer is twofold. My mother was a reading and study skills uh, expert for 27 years at the top academic school in Baltimore. 
So needless to say, words, vocabulary, writing were a huge part of our environment. And, and I, I, because of her, I loved it early on. Uh, you know, there's funny things. I had a reading list before private school. By the way, for everybody listening, I don't want to make private school sound like it's so elite. In Baltimore, we have a huge private school system between the private schools and the Catholic schools. We had our own sports leagues even that fed into the state from there. So it's not as if there's one private school and you're some elitist that goes there. They're not inexpensive, but my parents valued education. And uh, you know, so even before private school where we had a summer reading list and a test the first day back, my father would assign us biographies uh, every summer. And I read about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. One, one of the greatest books I read was by Dale Carnegie, who's mostly known for How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is one of the books on my uh, most important books I've ever read shelf. But he also wrote a book, people don't know this, called Lincoln the Unknown, he spent years researching Lincoln, and he, he wrote the unknown portions. Phenomenal book, if, if anybody wants to get a hold of it. Biographies are one of the greatest ways to learn about life, to learn about success and failure, and to expand yourself. Even today, I'm a biography, uh, 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 I, I don't want to say aficionado, but um, certainly have a huge affinity. And, uh, and then on Sunday mornings, I wasn't allowed to go do anything until I finished about 25 math problems that my father would hand write out for me and my brothers. But what was scary was he remember the days where there, the, the deposit slip for checks were this long and you'd, yep. you know, your father would write. My father would sit there. There were no calculators and he'd just add up the columns in his head and be done. Uh, but my mother would read uh, our written material and give us help and guidance, always very supportive. And then I do want to credit a, a, an English teacher in high school named Peter Bailey, who made literature become one of the most exciting and interesting components of my life. And he was a, uh, a guy who had blonde hair down to his shoulders in those days. Uh, it was not uncommon, but he definitely, but, and he dressed immaculately. I uh, always had a tie pin under his tie and all. But he made literature so exciting, and I, I really got to know him and did extra work with him, and that's how it came about. So I, I, the, anything I've accomplished in writing comes from those sources. And today, I do have a minimum, minimum number of written content pieces I produce for publication every single year. Uh, and I, I actually hit my goal about three days ago for the year. So it's an aggressive goal, but it's a goal that I love because I, I hope I'm contributing to helping others. That's awesome. I, we're going to hit on goals yeah. later because I, I know that that's a big uh, topic and uh, that's a discipline that I think some people have, some people don't. I think everybody talks about it. Uh, but I think the fact of how many people actually write down those goals and then make them measurable. And you've talked about what, what is a goal. A goal needs to be defined, needs to have a deadline, needs to have a, you know, uh, you know, quantified. So, um, that's helped me tremendously. Um, but I'm a pretty goal-driven person, but I, I, a lot of times I don't write them down. But uh, so let's, uh, so so. I, I, I also in listening to your description, it sounds like the teaching component came very much from some of the teachers that you had come across um, 
the teacher that you had mentioned in, uh, in the literature that, uh, you know, it's funny how, how people impact our lives, you know, and I think the fact that your nourishment, your, your, you know, your, your, you know, food in food out to the brain was very much, you know, biographies and successful people. I, I try to do a lot of the same thing. I think there's enough trash out there that you could read, but if you constantly, you know, refill the well with good stuff or people that you can at least admire or aspire to be, you can certainly learn from everybody. So, and that's what we're going to do today. So let's get on to a little bit of the the, uh, in the pandemic. I mean, what have you seen? And we talked, let's talk about the, you know, our topic today. So the impact of the pandemic. Yeah, I know you, you deal with a lot of data collection and research. Why don't you share some with some of our listeners, some of that information and what things that you can uh, shed some light on for us? Sure, uh, I'll be delighted. And I'm gonna give some very specific, anything I do, I try to bring some specific practical information. But but before we go there, uh, I'll give you the background. Um, you know, COVID was, uh, it, it wasn't an immediate shock. I think, Sonny, most of us, if you think back, now, now we know how severe it is. But if we think back, the first couple of weeks, we were joking about it. We were we were elbow bumping people and laughing because we didn't understand it. And uh, COVID will also have an extra meaning for me because on March 7th, my mother passed away. And the funeral was a, a few was a few days later. Uh, being Jewish, you bury people rather quickly. And the funeral home we had 300 people come through a receiving line and were hugging and shaking hands. COVID was known about, but nobody really understood it. Three days later, the funeral home stopped having any in-person funerals. That's how, how fast we progressed from this is a big joke to this is really serious. So at, when I realized how serious COVID was, I also realized it was going to have an impact on the world, the United States, business and certainly dentistry, which is the only area where I claim any hopeful expertise. And Levin Group made a decision. Uh, all of our executives were bought in right away to stop any marketing, any activities other than taking care of our clients and focus all of our other attention on helping the dental profession, all pro bono. So we've been working with the American Dental Association Health Policy Institute regularly. For those who don't know, they've got brilliant economists. Marco's the head economist there, a brilliant guy. I've been doing sharing data, doing webinars, interpreting data. We, this is actually, if this were a webinar, it's not. And I, I know this is unbelievable. So I swear this is true. This is my 107th video webinar perform, you know, discussion or presentation since March 25th, because I've said yes to every possible offer that, that comes through the door to try to be helpful. And we built new models that I can talk about for COVID. Now, the first thing to understand is when there's a crisis and, you know, my joke has always been, uh, well, you and I, we did strategic planning together and I pre last year and I, I appreciate you're not calling me and say, Roger, you, you did your firm did strategic planning for our practice, and you didn't mention COVID. What a what a failure! How could you have missed that? And, and of course, nobody knew. So once it hit, we realized that this was going to move dentistry into chaos. We've been through a shutdown. 
We've been through PPP that nobody under, again, nobody understood that at first. We've been through a reopening. We've been through PPE. Nobody understood that at first. We have been through loss of staff members. We have been through pent-up demand. And now we've entered another phase, and I can give the timeline later, of declining production. Not terrible, but 5 to 10%. And I'll explain where all this data comes from as we move along. So what happened was I looked at the whole situation with my group. And I have to, I have to tell you, my group has worked day and night. They have been phenomenal. And we, we realized that you needed to characterize dental practice business in COVID as a business turnaround, that every practice was going to go through a business turnaround. Now, fortunately, and I've had courses on this at Harvard Business School and other places, and their textbooks on the subject, there's a body of scientific academic work on how to do a business turnaround. Rule number one for our listeners is you identify the single most important factor. Because even, you know now you and I are doing this well into COVID. Uh, we're not in recovery yet, but we're on our way. And during this, this time, early on, we didn't know how impacted practices were going to be. And the first thing you look at is what is it going to take to survive, not even to be successful, but the first question I asked is, what will it take to, for practices, our clients, the entire profession? We've helped anybody who's asked for help uh, to survive. And the answer is one word. The answer is production. And that's called the denominator. In a turnaround, and actually you can apply all of this going forward as well, you look for that one statistic above all others that is so powerful that if you get it right, everything else will automatically happen. So I created a very simple formula called uh, the production formula, the production success formula, which as I tell it to you, Sonny, you're gonna say, okay, this is just common sense. And you're right, except for one little piece that I'll tell you in a moment. So the formula is so simple. If you hit the right production, you will get the right revenue, you will get the right cash, and you will get the right income, which means, ding, 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 you have survived, and by the way, you will also be successful. Now, the piece that's not common sense is if you get production right, and I'll tell you in a minute why I call it the denominator, then you will automatically, and here's the key point, automatically have the revenue, cash, and income that you need going forward to be successful. Now, Here's an example of how this formula becomes powerful. When COVID hit, 90% of dental practices had less than one month of cash on hand. You might have had less than one month of cash on hand. It was normal. And the idea was, okay, first of all, dentists don't think about a crisis. We, we don't get up in the morning and think, what if there is a earthquake? What if there's a hurricane? What if there's a pandemic? Nobody was asking about pandemics except for a small number of people prior to March of, uh, or whenever they first knew about it. So we didn't have the cash on hand. Is that a big deal? Well, maybe not because if Sonny, if you took your cash home as income, you can always put it back and you can put it back without a tax consequence unless you spent it. 
And a lot of dentists don't have that cash available or it went into retirement plans where to take it out. Now you get penalized, as severely penalized because you're not old enough to take it out yet. And the cash wasn't there for everybody. So without PPP, I estimated that 15% of dental practices would have disappeared. And I'm deliberately using the word disappear, not using the word bankruptcy. So I was talking to Marco, the brilliant head economist at the ADA, and he said, but Roger, we're only showing that 2% will go bankrupt. And, and this is where I interpret data for the ADA and other organizations. I said, Marco, that's true. Only 2 or 3% will go bankrupt. And I should mention, Sonny, I'm sorry, that Levin Group has a giant data collection group called the Levin Group Data Center. I forgot to mention that. So for our listeners, our data is coming from the Levin Group Data Center. We share data with about six dental organizations, three national banks, and Wall Street. So it's very valid data. And our data showed, yeah, only 3% will, will go bankrupt, but 12% will, will disappear. They'll shut down, they'll sell their patients, they'll merge. Most dental practices don't go under through bankruptcy, they just go through some other way of disappearing. So we had estimated uh, to my very great sadness that 15% of practices were going to disappear. Uh, if Now, PPP has helped tremendously. However, my current concern is PPP is running out for most practices, and if they didn't take the right steps, they may now be challenged somewhat. So that formula, uh, it starts with production. We call production the denominator, and every practice should track exquisitely a something divided by production. Uh, I like, uh, I like uh, revenue divided by production, but it could be profit divided by production. It could be overhead provided by direct production. You have to pick, but production is the single most important factor in the recovery. Then I'll stop in a moment for you, but the next step was we then identified 64 high value COVID recovery strategies. To me, the word recovery or business turnaround is exactly the same thing. And as a client, uh, Sonny, you know we're very focused on systems. We, you know, we've been a systems-based consulting firm since 1985. That's what we put in place for our clients. That's how the team gets trained. That's how production increases in normal times. And now we're hyper-focused on how to increase production during COVID. And we've integrated that into a lot of our education, the webinars I've been doing, the articles I've been writing, the blogs, and certainly now into our consulting. So that's our evolution during COVID. And we intend to continue to help in every possible way until we've successfully moved past it. Fantastic. Let me ask you a couple of questions you said about data collection. And uh, you said you're using real data. What kind of what kind of data are you collecting? Is it um, you know IRS data? Is it federal data? What kind of data is it? Is it uh, voluntary? Uh, you know, dentists are, are are filling out information. You know, surveys. Um, what kind of what kind of what kind of real time data are you getting? Or where is it coming from? Is my question. Fantastic. That's that's a great question that that should be asked. So. 
our data comes from multiple places. It's not IRS. It's not from the federal government. This is our own data. Mm-hmm. And it's collected to use specifically for our company. We don't sell it. Uh, we will often give it away. So, for example, William Blair is the largest Wall Street investment analysis firm in the world. And they use us to do studies. So we've done studies on aligners. We've done studies on direct-to-consumer aligners. We've done studies on uh, what has happened to practices during COVID. Um, They'll commission us to do these studies. We like it because even though we give them the data, and I do lecture several times a year to Wall Street investment bankers who invest in public dental companies on behalf of William Blair, Uh, I don't get paid for it. But when we do these studies, we also get lots of data. And then we, we, it also becomes our data and we will share that with organizations like the ADA and others. Uh, But we use the data uh, a lot for ourselves to create our programs. I I never believe that consulting should be opinion. It, it, It was too, it was easier up until the last five or six or seven years to say, okay, here's my opinion, because so many things could work. What's going to work going forward is much more limited. And if practices continue to operate the way they did pre-COVID, for example, many are going to be surprised by their results. So we collect data, a lot of it through market research. We also do the Dental Economics Magazine, the Dental Economics Levin Group Annual Survey, Uh, Normally, we start collecting data in May. However, when we looked at COVID 2020, it made no sense to collect any data. Things, nothing has ever changed so quickly. Um, If you go to our website, livinggroup.com, by the way, your listeners can sign up for the tip of the day, which is free. There's a pop-up box that comes out Monday through Friday, and we're actually up to 42,000 people now. It's, It's greatly expanded during COVID. But there's also, everything's free, It's a, there's also a COVID-19 resource center there. Now, some of the information, my point was going to be, is already obsolete because things have changed so quickly. But in COVID, uh, we decided for the Dental Economics Levin Group Annual Survey, which is published usually in November in Dental Economics Magazine, again, it's all pro bono, that we'd wait till January of 21 because there was no point, in my opinion, in collecting data that was going to be outdated by the time we published the article on it. Uh, so we and we also share data with organizations. We get their data, they get ours, and um, that's that's created a wonderful opportunity to have solid information as the as the basis that we build our programs on, and, and all of our education. It's it's wonderful to have the confidence of data behind you. That way, Sonny, you can tell me I'm wrong and you might be right, but at least I have data to look at and say, well, here's what the data shows. I'm I'm not a defensive or argumentative person. If somebody tells me I'm wrong, my first question is, oh, let me go see why and what I can learn from it. But when you have the data, um, I've had a few people over the years challenge me on a point. Um, usually nicely. Uh, well, I've had many people challenge me nicely, but once in a while, somebody will get their back up about a point I make. And look, I, I could definitely be wrong. I do so much that maybe I miss something. But when I give them the data, they'll turn around and say, oh, that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that. 
and and my goal is not to prove to them I'm right. My goal is to work through the challenge to determine what the best answer is. Thank you. Uh, let's, uh, you know, if, if, um, if you can, if you can send me uh, some, uh, um, the links on the website and also the tip of the day stuff, I'll put that in the show notes. So anybody listening that can, can, uh, benefit from that. So I appreciate that. And we'll share that with our listeners. Um, sure. next question, next question. Let's ask you, like you talked about 64 high value COVID recovery items. I don't think we have time to do all 64, but can you share with us, uh, you know, do a David Letterman top 10 or whatever you think, but can you just sure. share with us some of the ones that are high value? Or you said they're sure. all high value, but you're high, high value. How's that? Well, there's, there, there's high, high value, high value, and fairly <laughs> high of. value, right. <laughs> and, and actually, as always, I've got to give you a little bit of background on uh, the answer, and then I'll get very, very specific. I try to hold myself wherever I can. As a dentist, I know dentists want practical how-to recommendations, and I'm, that, that's kind of my thing. Uh, so I hope I accomplish it. But the background is that Levin Group, the consulting firm, uh, from day one, it, I didn't just start out doing it. I have two friends who were working for one of the top international strategic consulting firms. Th this is a firm that works with IBM, Microsoft, Italy, I mean, literally, you know, the Italian government, the US government, they did the last presidential or two ago presidential transitions, which people don't realize is a massive and massively expensive uh, uh, action. So, uh, you know, we have one coming up in January, a lot goes into that. And they helped me from day one, we had a series of dinners where I asked a million questions. And I, I made two decisions. One was, we were going to be a systems-based consulting firm. Everything we did was going to be like baking a cake. We weren't going to have icing and batter and a plate. We were going to have a system that ended up being a cake. And that's been our approach. And I love that approach. And secondly, we were going to be focused on production. Our, if, we have, if I were to identify our brand the way I see it, it's increasing practice production. That's not our mission statement but the brand and brands can change, but that's actually been the same brand since 1985. And if anything, production right now is 10 times more important than it was pre-COVID. And for the fee-for-service practices listening, that's how you wanna make your decisions. What's going to sustain the production at the level I want it to be? So, uh, so production strategies have been the DNA of our company for 36, almost 37 years. And one of my projects next year, and I'll, I'll just move on after this, is a project I finally feel I can take on. It's a hard project, which is to identify 250 production strategies pre-COVID. Now, of the 250, the 80-20 principle does apply. And if anybody listening doesn't know what the 80-20 principle is, Google it. It's one of the most powerful success and personal success strategies to have a great life you will ever learn from Vilfredo Pareto, the Italian economist. And the 80-20 principle on the 250 production strategies shows that uh, 42 of the 250 production strategies, this is all pre-COVID, uh, will get you 80% of the production increase in the practice. Uh, 
And I have two goals for next year. One I will do, one I might do. Because uh, one's on my goal list and one I'm thinking about. And Sonny, you, you said we're going to talk about goals. So you know what it means when we set a goal. And my goal is next year to take the top 50 pre-COVID. Now, some of these COVID strategies will get rolled in because they'll become permanent. But pre-COVID strategies and rank them in priority order. Now, that sounds like I could sit down one Sunday night with a glass of scotch and do it. It's going to be really, really hard because the way I approach it is I create some mathematical formulas. I look at data to see, well, historically, what did number seven on my list currently do for Sonny's practice and 25 other practices? You know, that's really number 14, or maybe it doesn't even make the list. So it's going to be really hard. It'll take, I hope I can do it in a year. But from that, I want to come out with a new consulting program in addition to what we have that I'm going to call the 52-week production program. That's not the real name, but something like that. And the way it'll work is every week we'll deliver the next strategy and all the accompanying materials that go with it. But we're going to be, we're not going to fix the team and we're not going to do this and that. We're just going to focus 100% on production. So that's the one that I'll do at some point in the future, uh, but I don't want to do it till I complete the project. Given that background on production and our focus on production, we worked day daily as a team to identify production, COVID-related production strategies. So right now, if, uh, if you put a gun to my head, as the expression goes, the top strategy is reactivating patients. Dentistry cannot afford to be lazy. I don't mean lazy as an insult or a criticism. In fact, I try very hard as a consulting consultant and consulting firm CEO not to judge people and never to criticize people. That's, that, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. But as dentists, we have had an incredible run of success. You know, Sonny, your success and I hope you don't get offended by this. And my success, I had a very successful practice. Um, it was a lot easier when you and I started to, you know, to go out and build a practice. I got to join my father. Now, my father only had about 1.2 practices. I had to go build the other 0.8. That sounds like, wow, that, that, that's a challenge. It really wasn't. All you had to do was show up in those days. Remember the expression, hang a shingle, and you were going to make it. Some people made it better than others. You've been incredibly successful through a lot of hard work and focus and intelligence, but you were going to make a living, Sonny, either way, and your kids who I've met, and they're wonderful kids, uh, they were going to eat uh, one way or another. Uh, today, that's not necessarily the case. Dentistry is not as much of a guarantee as it once was. And for the fee-for-service practices, you've got to be smarter. You don't have to have a higher IQ. Being smarter means you access people that can help you and advise you and guide you, whether it's a friend, a mentor, an advisor, however it comes about. So we can't be lazy. We need to be very proactive. We need to put time into right now hitting these production numbers. So the first strategy is reactivate all patients. And by the way, so many people say to me when I was doing live seminars, they'd come up at the break with great pride. And I love pride. Well, I already do that. And then I would ask them questions because if I know your revenue and your profit and your overhead, I can tell you whether you're already doing 
that. You know, it might be a strategy that has nothing to do directly with the production number, the profit number, the overhead number. But as soon as I know those three, I can tell you you're not doing this as well as you should because uh, I've done this for a long time. So number one, reactivate all overdue patients. Now the term reactivation has a brand new meaning. It doesn't mean they haven't been in in 18 months. You've, you've heard me say that, Sonny, in seminars at the Yankee where we've been together. Forget it, different world. Reactivation today means any patient that does not have their next appointment. And you work these lists daily, nothing is more important than the front desk coming in and reactivating patients. Now the challenge is in most practices, the front desk is still doing what they always did. I don't blame them a bit, that's all they know how to do. It's up to the dentist as a leader, and leadership is a, a topic for another day, Sonny, but it's such a powerful topic uh, to talk about. We could spend weeks on it, and, and it really isn't what most people think, but the dentist as a leader has to focus the team. And we have practices set, still setting records that set record months in June, July, August, September, October, and November. That even as others are dropping five to 10% as the pent up demand goes away, because they're, they're relying on natural circumstances, we have practices that will have the record year in 2021 and an even better year in 2022. So, the, so to reactivate patients, there are a couple things you need to know. Number one, use scripts. Scripting is, I don't wanna call it the secret sauce, it's not a secret, but only 5% of practices follow scripting. Scripting is essential in this crisis. And the two new additions, again, we rebuilt certain things in the scripting are you tell every single patient when they call how you're going to protect them. The data is showing, and, our, and the data I'm giving today, if you go to, the, is our data, but if you go to the ADA, our data is plus or minus 10% within the standard deviation. And our data is showing that 15% of patients have not come back yet to practices. If you want them back, tell them how you're gonna keep them safe. And number two, tell them that they can afford to come back. And the way we tell them is we mention to patients on the phone, even active patients, Mrs. Jones, I just wanted you to know, by the way, that we do have interest-free financing available for patients who want to take advantage of it. And what that tells the patient, I mean, Sonny, interest-free, you're not a flamboyant person. You don't have a Bentley yet, right? Or you didn't buy yourself a Bentley yet? No, but, no. but you know, if I call you up and say, Sonny, I got a Bentley for you and it's interest-free, I know you still wouldn't do it, but you would take that one little moment and say, oh, it's interest-free? Let me think about that. Of course, with the snow you got, how many inches did you get this week? 46 inches right. overnight. With, with 46 inches, it better be a four-wheel drive Bentley. So I, I'm not a car person, so I don't know if they have one or not. But when you tell patients interest-free, you give them the confidence to come back, to make their appointment, keep the appointment, and come in. Number two strategy, get your no-shows under 1%. Note shows have always been important, but not like today. Why? Because today, chair time is the single most valuable commodity in the practice. 
Sonny, I don't know for sure because we know each other well, but I've never actually personally looked at your schedules. Cynthia could probably tell you, but you, you probably lose five to 8% of your chair time per year through no-shows and other inefficiencies. If we don't get no-shows under 1%, and in most practices, they're four to 6%, now we're in trouble and it will affect production. And the reason is that unfilled chair time can never be recovered, but the patient volume because of COVID has dropped down to 76% according to the ADA, 80% according to Levine Group data center, so very similar of the pre-COVID volume. So if you're seeing 20% less patients, you need to maximize chair time, that, which is why we're pulling out every efficiency trick that we can, but one of the biggest is no-shows. You have 90 days to get them under 1%, there's a three-step method to do it, which is you call, and it's a training concept. You call the patient the first time, let them know you had expected them. I'll skip all the scripting for the sake of time today. And that, and then you put them off a minimum of six to eight weeks. And that, that scares dentists, but I've got openings tomorrow. Right, but if you keep appointing a no-show tomorrow, you are training that person to no-show whenever they want. And by the way, ultimately, you will lose money on many of these patients that no-show. Uh, and I could go into the data behind that, but you'll just trust me, I, I can show you mathematics that support that statement. When you get your no-shows down to under 1%, you add one year of production time for every 20 years you're in practice. So, you know, how many dentists want to throw away a year of time every 20 years? And most dentists now are going to be practicing closer to 40 years. So that's two years. That's the real other numbers. Major, those those are real numbers. Those are real oh, yeah. concrete numbers. So uh, I, I, I can, I, I, you talked about that, like 1%, if you reduce your overhead 1%, what does that do? I think so, so many times we can be very glib about these numbers. But when you when you speak to it in real numbers and real data, and if someone's doing, you know, if they're, you know, netting three hundred thousand dollars a year, they just put three hundred thousand dollars in their pocket because they have gotten these numbers in that range. So that's real data. So thanks. Yeah, and keep in mind, Sonny, and we can talk about this in the next web uh, podcast or some other time. Every dollar that you lose, every single dollar that you lose, you will work a few seconds or minutes longer. Most dentists will, are gonna work five to eight years longer to reach financial independence than they need to. You don't have to retire, but it's great when you say, I'm financially independent. So the other factor with no-shows is brand new. If your no-shows increase on average, increase by 2%, this is brand new for COVID, over your pre-COVID number. So let's say you were at 4% no-shows last February. If you hit 6% in November, that 2% increase is now an indicator that you are losing patients and possibly permanently. It, I went back and did a massive deep data dive in, of the 2008 and 2009 recession. And what I found was Patient, uh, practices lost eight to nine percent of their patients, and many did not come back. They went when they finally went back to dentistry. They went somewhere else. So you want if your no shows jump two percent, 
it's not more people being scared of COVID or worried about financial concerns. It's people not coming back. And again, for your fee-for-service listeners, I know that's the group we're, we're talking to uh, or anybody, but for them, the loss of, it's harder to attract new patients in a fee-for-service practice because you don't have that uh, PPO engine, oh, I'll come to you because you participate. So you do not want to lose quality patients in your practice. The third item is incredible. Uh, this is an amazing breakthrough. Uh, and it's saving 10 minutes per hour of doctor time. And let me tell you why this is one of my absolute favorites and it's in my top 10. If you can save 10 minutes an hour, that doesn't sound that hard, right, Sonny? I mean, you're redoing your systems. You're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a former uh, team-based athlete, which is, by the way, team sports are one of the greatest ways to learn leadership and cooperation and compromise. Um, I was uh, never at your level, but I was a serious child athlete. And when you're told to go sit on the bench, you don't argue, you learn to go sit on the bench. So, you know, it's a, it's a great way to learn to be humble. And I've tried to bring that humility. I have to work at it, but I've tried to bring that through my life. Because when, when you stop having humility, you stop learning. A great and, motivator. Sitting on the bench uh, is a great motivator. <laughs> absolutely. You're, you're angry, but you do it and you do it without saying a word. So uh, with doctor time, it doesn't sound very hard to save 10 minutes an hour. It's not that hard, but you have to do it the right way. And if you go through the steps of number one, doing uh time studies, procedural time studies, you will find where you're wasting time. Every dentist wastes time. They just don't know it. And normally when I'm lecturing on this, I know many in my audience are in denial. You know, maybe they go through the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of whatever Roger says. I think they actually say, to give myself a little credit and them, that's true, but not for me. Everybody thinks it's natural to think we're the exception. And the statement I always make is there are exceptions, but it's probably not you because we have endless practices out of the 30,000 we've worked with where we've saved enormous time. I could tell you about a client of ours that works with um, uh, Angela Pickett in our company that was not taking new patients when we met her, but had financial constraints and concerns, serious ones and she is now seeing twice as many new patients as she was 18 months ago and handling it beautifully and has more vacation time than she's ever had. Uh, so here's the point. If you can say 10 minutes an hour, and we are now doing this routinely, at first it was bumpy, but we've gotten better and better. And this is doctor time, not practice time. The doctor is approximately 75% of practice production. The hygienist is a or hygienists are about 25%. We just wanna make both of those bigger. And I'll get to hygienists next as my last example of production increases. If we can save 10 minutes an hour for a doctor who works four days a week, think about this, Sonny, and you give me any example that's bigger than this, we will save 32 days a year, or we really add 32 days a year of doctor production, but you don't work one more minute. That's the equivalent in a four day a week practice 
of two more months a year. And then if you go 12 years, you've picked up 24 months. This is all mathematics. You cannot argue with this. Mm-hmm. You've picked up two more years of production. You know, one of my philosophies for myself, for our clients, for everybody is if you're going to go to work every day, make it the best day that you possibly can. My single highest purpose on this planet, it's not a goal, it's not a mission, you, you, because you never accomplish it, you live it. My sing, and I, this is out of a Stanford Business School course, and Stanford may be the hardest business school in the world to get into. I, it took me years to figure this out. It's, it sounds so simple, but my single highest purpose that I live every day is live positive every day and give it to the world. That is my driving purpose behind everything that I do. And I want the world of dentistry to know that these 10 minutes saved will shave six to 10 years off reaching financial independence. You will not work faster. I hate rushing. When I rush, I'm miserable. I don't want dentists rushing. I mean, there are crunch times here and there, but if you have a lot of them, your schedule's wrong. And if you can save that 10 minutes an hour and build a new schedule, you just picked up two months a year of time. It's incredible. But let me add something I think is very interesting because I'm a basketball coach and I coach basketball my whole life since I finished playing. And the difference in coaching, I want to ask you if this is, if you found this at all relative to what you just said, where you said the uh, the dentist typically says, oh, yeah, I, I recognize what Roger's saying, but that's not me, right? Um, yeah. Here's a typical example. If you're coaching a boys basketball team versus coaching a girls basketball team, you coach a boys basketball team and you uh, you go in at half, you go in at, let's say you go in at halftime. This is your speech. Your speech is, listen, we're getting beat down the floor. Our, our guy's getting by us and we are not rebounding well. You give that, that halftime speech to a girl's team and every single girl looks at each other and says, that's me. He's talking about me. I'm my girl got, got by me. She beat me. I'm not rebounding well. They take personal accountability for it. Now you say that same speech to a boys team and every single one of them looks at each other and says, he ain't talking to me. He, he, he's talking to you. <laughs> I'm not getting beat. You must be getting beat. So I, I'm just curious if that is there any relativity in the dental example that you gave. I, I, I would be curious to see that. So let's let's keep going. Uh, just a little just a little sideline. I, I found that fascinating, and I, I found it very effective in coaching boys teams and girls teams to motivate boys teams. You can do it one way, and you motivate girls teams. You can do it a different way because there's a certain amount of personal accountability that certain people take naturally so let's keep going so the savings of 10 for 10 to 10 minutes an hour is huge just figure you know in a six hour day you've added an hour you know yeah just 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 simple math now eight hour day you've added almost an hour and a half so exactly you know, the math is people don't simple. realize yeah people don't realize how much one percent or one minute or 10 minutes adds up. These little small things really add up. By the way, thank you for your example on the basketball team. You know that I love questions when I don't know the answer because I'm interested and you've given me a gift today. You've given me a question to really think about. Uh, so th- that that's one of the things dentists can do. We've got a lot of those, but what about hygiene? You know, Sonny, you and I know that dentists have been complaining about 
hygienists forever. Well, they make so much. You hear, you hear the term sometimes, well, they're prima donnas. I've got sort of a different take, which is I love the idea of, of team. I love teamwork. In our own company, I founded the company. I do own the company. And I, my title is CEO, but I don't think about that very often. Uh, I look at the executive group as just an equal flat team of people that uh, I'm equal to. And they have learned over the, they have no problem telling me I'm wrong. They have no problem telling me I've made a mistake. I've got a decision I have to make later today. We have a, a very large group practice that's come to us for some real custom work. And I kind of know exactly what I want to offer them. They're ready to go. They just want us to tell them what it is. But there's one thing I'm not quite sure of. So I've called an extra 15 minute meeting with three people today to get their input. That's to me, that's the greatest concept of team. We're, you know, once the game is on, we're all working together. Having said that, um, I look at hygienists a little bit differently. They do go to school, they do get a license. They're not better than front desk staff or assistants, but they are higher trained professionals. And I think they, that we should view them that way. On the other hand, if you want me to view you as a higher trained professional, then you also need to perform as a higher trained professional. If you're gonna come to work, see eight patients, clean teeth, go home and resent anything else I ask you to do or to participate in, then I have a problem with that as a leader. So here's what I'm gonna ask the hygienist back to increasing production. Uh, and these are COVID related strategies, although they're great strategies in any time, but remember, Levine Group is chasing every 1% of production or half a percent we can get right now for our clients and fee-for-service practices need to do that as well. Because at the end, if you ask me or let me, I'll give you the data on how many fee-for-service practices there are out there. Thanks for listening to the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast. If you would like to share your fee-for-service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our fee-for-service dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.